According to Wikipedia, new, right? I didn't say that five years ago. We also have Googleosians now instead of theologians. You just got to Google it, you know. But according to Wikipedia, there are currently 7,358 living languages in our world, meaning that there are 7,358 different languages that people use to communicate with one another. Now, that number is rapidly shrinking. In the past 100 years, 100 languages have gone extinct, and by the year 2050, those that study these things say that probably 90% of the languages that are used in the world today will also have gone extinct. With the advent of uh, technology and just the globalization movement, um, there is a decline in languages that are used. Now, there are also other forms of language. There is what we would call sign language for people that cannot hear audible speech. There is also body language, which there are some people that are incredible at understanding and interpreting and responding to. And then there's also just what I like to call silent language. And that's where you have a conversation with someone without even uttering a word or even using any motion at all. It's the kind of thing like when you go to return a broken television at Best Buy. And you're looking at the person on the other side of the service desk and they tell you that they can't return it because you don't have the flat bottom base that it came with. Or they tell you that there's a 20% restocking fee. And you just look at them for 40 seconds. And they look at you for 40 seconds. And there's this whole silent conversation going on without words. You're saying, I'm not leaving here until you exchange the TV or refund the money. And they're saying to you, you're going to need that base. And you're saying to them, do you know how much money I've spent here? And they're saying to you, it doesn't matter. We want the base and we don't want the broken TV. And you're saying to them, if you ever want me to shop here again, then you're going to replace or refund my money. And then finally, after that 40-second silent exchange takes place, they look at you and say, let me see what I can do for you. It's language without words. And it happens in our world all the time. There is also a language of the kingdom of God that is absolutely silent. And so what we're going to talk about this morning, it's the language, and I believe the rapidly declining lost language of humility. A few nights ago, I was having devotions with my kids and before we got into our time reading the Bible together, my daughter, Sarah, who is my youngest girl, she asked me a question. She said, Dad, I've been reading the book of Revelation, and I'm reading about what God did through the Apostle John and how God revealed himself to him. And, and Dad, why is it that God doesn't reveal himself that way to people more often? Why is it that it's just an instance here or there or something that we read about in a book or in the Bible, but it's not something that's a reality for most of us in our everyday life? And the answer that I gave to Sarah to that question really is the, uh, the, the foundation of our Bible study here this morning. And what I said to Sarah, and I took her to the Proverbs, the Proverbs I told you I would share with you, chapter 15, verse 33, and it says this. It says that the fear of the Lord 
is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. And then God repeats himself in chapter 18, verse 12. He says, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty or proud, lifted up. And before honor is humility. There is an honor that God seeks to bestow upon his people. It's part of what he does as he works within our lives. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, it says, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me, for them that honor me will I honor and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. A word that was spoken to the house of Saul when uh, they had, or the house of Eli rather, when they had turned their back and they had done dishonor to the Lord and not honoring the office of the priesthood that had been given to them. But what we gather from the scripture is that it's God's will and desire to bestow honor upon his people. He wants to beautify them with his beauty. But a principle that's attached to God's honoring of the lives of his saints is that honor never precedes humility. Humility is always prerequisite to the honor that God wants to bestow upon the life. Now, as we look through the scriptures and we see the way that God has dealt with different people, we see God's honor placed on them in different ways. I think of Joseph, the son of Jacob who was honored with an incredible position, made the prime minister of Egypt and really a picture of the savior of the world with the wisdom that God gave him to sustain Egypt and the surrounding nations through the seven-year famine of the day. But God elevated him and honored him with position. I think of Moses who was honored with the demonstration of God's power in incredibly miraculous ways. He was made a pillar of what, would, what Israel would become and really the founder of their constitution and government, what we would call the law of Moses in the scripture. But God honoring Moses with that privilege. I think of Joshua who was honored of God. God setting the seal upon his leadership for the children of Israel and bringing them into the promised land and then using Joshua as the instrument and the general that would bring them victory over their enemies. I think of David, whom God honored by making him a great king and a mighty warrior, slaying the mighty Goliath and really raising through the ranks from nothing and yet being made the greatest king Israel ever had. I think of the prophets that we read their testimony and their stories and how God brought them up and he honored them by giving them insight and revelation and a place in history to foretell and foretell the things that he would do. And I think of the apostles, the twelve that were chosen by Jesus. And many after them that were honored to be put in positions where they could be an influence and a light in the world and and be a testimony for him. And God has honored his people in every generation, not just in the Bible in times of old, but even to the present day, God is still seeking to bestow honor upon his people. But the common denominator in the honor of God, whether it be the saints of antiquity whether it be what we see happen in our world with certain people that God honors today, there's a common denominator. And that is that before honor is always humility. And it's interesting to consider that the honor of God very, very rarely comes upon someone's life early in their life. It's often later on that God chooses to do it. And it never happens before an extreme humiliation. 
and funny, but you read the scripture and you see that those that were honored before humility, which happens from time to time, they're obscure and they're pushed off the pages of scripture, never making the finish line. And the younger the person that's honored of God, the more extreme the humbling that they go through before it. I believe that God's will for every one of us is that he would bestow his honor upon our life. I think that's in his heart. It's his will that we would reflect his beauty in some way. He wants us to be distinct. He wants our lives to be impacting. And he wants us to be great. But before honor is humility. Every time. So the question, and what I want to do is answer two questions this morning, is number one is, what is humility? And then number two, why is it necessary? And before going any further, I just want to point out to you that you just happen to be so blessed this morning to have someone who understands these things <laughs> and who is a living demonstration of their truths and their principles. No. <laughs> before we go any further and before you, for one minute, think that I'm talking down to you from up here, Please understand that as I look at these scriptures with you, I feel very much like a spectator. And I feel as though the Spirit of God is dealing with me in the same way I'm hoping that he'll deal with you in these things. Because I believe that the stakes are high. But I think it's something that we all need to hear uh, the speaker included, a very important thing. So what is humility? Simply put, humility is the proper view and the accurate assessment of one's self. Or to say it another way, to see what God sees when we look at ourselves. When we look at ourselves, oftentimes we're looking at it through the lens of what other people see. We think, well, what does this person perceive? Or what does this person observe when they look at my life? And our great temptation is to measure ourselves according to the standard of what someone else sees. But that's not an honest assessment of what we truly are. Because what we are comes from the inside out and no one else sees the inside except God. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, God says that all things are naked and opened before the eyes of him with whom we deal or have to do. That means that God sees right to the very core of what we are. And what God desires is that we would see ourselves the same way that he sees us, and the result of that will always be humility. And here's why. Because what does God see when he lifts up the veil of what we put on the outward and sees right into our hearts? Well, thankfully, the Bible tells us exactly what God sees. It's Jeremiah 17 in the ninth verse, and it says this. It says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it? Or I like the Living Bible on this one. The Living Bible puts it this way. The heart is the most deceitful thing there is and desperately wicked. No one can really know how bad it is. Only the Lord knows. In other words, when God looks at our hearts, he doesn't see the outward shell that we put up. But rather, he sees the core of what our sin nature makes us. And in our hearts, he sees something that he calls deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, meaning that there is nothing more desperately wicked than the heart of each one of us. Aren't you encouraged this morning? But what that leads us to infer is that in the natural state, there is a huge difference between what we see of ourselves 
and what God sees of us when he looks into our lives. And humility is the process of bringing those two things into alignment. What I think of myself and what God thinks of myself. And bringing those two things into alignment, that's humility. Now, there are different types of knowledge. And I need to pause here to say this. There is a head knowledge and there is a heart knowledge. A head knowledge is an intellectual grasping of a fact. We can do that all the time. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen. The picture that you see there is something that we're all very, very familiar with. But I'm going to tell you something about that box, that present, that gift that you do not know. That gift is absolutely the most disgusting thing you have ever seen in your life. If you knew what that truly was, you would know that it is the most rancid, smelling, disgusting, bacteria-infested thing you have ever seen in your life. Now, I have just told you that, and I've given you a head knowledge about what that is. Because I've told you something, you can hear my words, equate the truth of them with what you're seeing, and you can ascribe to that. And say, yeah, okay, I, I get that, I understand it. That is, that is a filthy and disgusting thing. You've done it, that's head knowledge. I want to show you another picture. Okay, you could take the picture down. Take it down, take it down. You all saw it. You all know what that is, okay? Now, wait, wait, wait. There's a big difference in what just happened. I don't have to describe for you for one minute what you just saw up there on the screen. You told me that you completely understand the full context of what you just saw. It was in your faces, it was in your voices, it was in your body language. Everything in you just responded to what went up on the screen. Here, I'm sorry to do that to you on a Sunday morning, but you'll appreciate the point when it's through. Is that you have a heart knowledge of what that is. Meaning you've experienced it. You've been in the situation, in the presence of something like that. And now you can go, oh gosh, I don't even, I came here not for that. Please, why did you do that? That's the worst thing you've ever done. Because I want you to understand the difference between a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. And especially when it comes to this concept of humility. See, we know in our heads what God says about our hearts. God says your heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. We say, okay, I get it. But do you get it? God says it and we ascribe to it mentally. But it's an altogether different thing when we see, when we smell, when we experience what's inside of us and what we are capable of. And what happens is our knowledge of what God says about us changes from our head to our heart once we get a grasp of what's really going on on the inside. We go, yeah, yeah, I'm deceitful, desperately wicked, above all things. Who could know it? But so are you. And frankly, you're probably a little bit worse desperately wicked than I am. So it's all good because, you know, whatever. But listen, once you see what's in your heart and you taste it and you experience it, you, you, you're a different person. See, so humbling is the process of God's word about us going from here to here and understanding what he says that we are. And so the humbling process is learning what we are and then transferring that knowledge. And the only way for that to happen is for us to see, taste, and smell what's in ourselves. And that can be a long and painful process. I think of Moses, young man of 40 years old. And the Bible tells us that when he was placed in his position in Egypt, that he was mighty in word and deed, that he was handsome, that he was strapping, he was capable, he was educated, he was eloquent. That's the picture that's painted of Moses at the age of 40. 
And a call of God comes into his life that God's going to use him to set the Israelite slaves free from their captivity there in Egypt. And so it comes into his heart that he's Hebrew and he goes out to see his brothers and he takes justice into his own hands and he kills an Egyptian taskmaster that's oppressing one of his people, one of God's people, and he buries him in the sand. But the plot is found out and Moses is exiled to save his own life because of the crime that he committed against the government of Egypt. And he spends the next 40 years of his life being humbled. God showing him not what he thinks he is, but what he really is. To the point where by the time he's 80, God comes to him and says, Moses, I have a plan for your life. And there's something I want to do with you. And Moses' response to that was this. He said, I am not eloquent and I can't speak. And I'm incapable of this great task that you've called me unto. And God looks at him and says, now you see what you really are. And you're at a point where perhaps I can use your life. I think of Joseph at the age of 17, standing tall, showing forth his coat of many colors to his brothers, declaring to them, everyone should see in me what I see in me. I'm the one who can lead this family and take our nation into greatness. That was the attitude that Joseph had as a young man. We see that his brothers weren't so pleased and so in agreement with the concepts that he had about himself. And so they sell him as a slave into Egypt and they lie to their father saying that he's been killed by a wild animal. And Joseph spends more than a decade in Egypt as a slave and then as a prisoner. And then he's maligned and he's humbled for those years. So that by the time God brings him into the position of elevation that God had destined for him, when his brothers come down to Egypt and they're reunited after 20 years of being apart, 20 years since the time that they sold him into slavery, when they do finally bow the knee to that now majestic king that God had raised up in Egypt, Joseph's word wasn't, see, I told you so, if only you had recognized it before. But rather he realized, he said, don't be grieved with yourselves. For even if you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. In other words, this was God's plan and God's program, and it's for God's glory. We see a completely different Joseph on the other side. I think of Paul, who at the moment of his conversion, he disputed, he persuaded, he argued, and he couldn't believe that the people wouldn't listen to what he had to say. So proud was he at his revelation and the completion that now Christ was in his life. He was completed. He was saved. And he thought, everyone should know what I know and see what I see. And so he argued himself into a point where they wanted him dead. And when the apostles had to gently say to Paul, hey, Paul, Saul at that time, we want you to leave Jerusalem. Go back to Tarsus. Get a job. Work for a while. Learn a few things in your heart. He spends then three years in the wilderness and then another seven or eight years working as a tent maker. God not using his life at all but coming into an alignment between what God sees of him and what he sees of himself to a point where God could then use his life. Think a little bit of my own experience and not to at all try to put myself in the company of those whom I've spoken of. But I can vividly recall the early days of my salvation, seeing Jesus, knowing who he was and the truth of the word of God and of eternal life. And having it in my mind that I was somehow going to be God's next gift to the world. And I would read the pages of scripture and read about David and read about uh, Joshua and Paul and the apostle John and others. And I would say, God, I'm going to be the next David. I'm going to be the next John. I'm going to be your next Joshua, God. And then some time went by and I began to see a few things that were in me. 
And I began to experience a little bit of God's humiliation. And I came to a point where I said, okay, God, maybe I'll just be Gideon or Jacob. I could do that. Heel catcher. I'm sneaky. I'm conniving. Or maybe Jonah, reluctant, wanting to run. God, I I know I'm not going to make David. I'm not going to make John. But maybe I could do Gideon, Jonah, you know, one of those. And then a little bit more time goes by. And you see a little bit more of yourself. And you experience and taste and smell a little bit more of your own weakness. And I remember going back to God and saying, okay, God, can I be Samson? Can I maybe be Lot? I mean, he was saved. Lot was saved. I mean, he made a mess of his life. He did the whole Sodom thing. And, you know, it's not a pretty picture after that. But the New Testament says that Lot was saved. He's in the Bible. God, maybe I could just be Lot. Or maybe I could be King Saul. Didn't finish well, but got to do something. And you see a little bit more of yourself. You smell a little bit more of what's inside. You see what you really are. And I remember vividly coming to a point, I still have the journal entry, I think it was the last one I ever made. And I said, God, I am Esau. God, I'm Cain. God, I'm Judas. Could I be the one that would turn my back on you? And realizing what we are, realizing what I am, that we possess absolutely nothing that's of any value to God in and of ourselves or in our fallen sinful nature, that we are altogether less than nothing. And so this humbling process brings us to the realization that we are nothing, that we have nothing at all to bring to God. That's what humility is. Now, why is it necessary? Why is it necessary that God humble us before he honor us? Three things and then we'll be done. Number one is this. Because we must know in our heart, not in our head, that we are not better or greater than anyone else, anywhere, at anything, period. That that is the true state and fact of what we are. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, what the Bible is telling us there is that if you want to compare yourself to someone else, to try to get an idea of your value or of what you are, then the only one that you can compare yourself to in order to do that is God himself. Because if you compare yourself with any other person, you are a sinner comparing yourself with a sinner. And when you compare a sinner with a sinner, the sum total at the end of the day is that you have a sinner. And it doesn't matter if someone is more of a sinner in worldly or human standards or less of a sinner or a different form of sinner, There is two categories, sinner and God. And if you're not God and you can't match that level, then you're a sinner. And therefore, any person that you would look at, no matter who they are or what they've done, you're on an equal plane with them. Now, our natural tendency is this, is that if God honors us or elevates us or lifts us up in some form, even a little bit, is that we want to ride on that high horse. We go, oh, yeah, God, you're honoring me because, and we try to come up with reasons for it. It must never happen. It cannot ever happen. I said to Sarah when we were having our conversation, I said, what do you think would happen if John the Apostle was 30 years old when God gave him the revelation? He was 90, by the way. He was an old man when God gave him the revelation. But what if he was 30? I could tell you what would have happened. We would have seen, first of all, the book written. It would have been the number one bestseller circulated throughout all of the Asian, African, and European continents in the day. He would have been on the equivalent of Oprah being interviewed about the things that God had shown him. 
He would have built the first church of the Apostle John, and it would have been huge. There would have been 50,000 seats in that auditorium there that John would teach at every week. He would be on TV. He would be in speaking tours. He would have agents. His website would be off the hook, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Because everybody's got to hear the revelation that God gave to John. But yet that's not at all the way John dealt with the revelation that he had. He recorded it in the most simple and accurate terms that he could. It was placed in a book where people would say, no one can really even understand that. And he would spend his dying years being carried from church to church. And his message was one sentence. Brethren, sisters, love each other. A totally different picture than if John had been young when he had gotten it. I think of the prophet Isaiah. I've asked you to turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a very transformational moment in his ministry. It's the humbling point for the prophet Isaiah. He had already been called and he had already been used. You can read chapters 1 through 5 and see what he said during those early years of his ministry. But a lot of it was woe and condemnation. He would look at a nation and he would say, woe unto you. He would look at a group of people and say, woe unto you, woe unto you that join house to house, that sow seeds of iniquity with cords of vanity. Woe unto you that seek early after strong. It's all woe for five chapters. Woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. But then something happens to him in chapter 6. Notice in verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. See, he had heard God And he had seen others, but now he sees God. And it says, above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He came to the realization upon seeing himself in the light of the holiness of God that he was no better than anyone else. To the point that later on in his life, at the end of his ministry, he would say this, Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, but we are all as an unclean thing And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That he realized what he was in truth, in reality. And there was a humility that followed. For us to flaunt ourselves or to flaunt anything about ourselves is the most disgusting thing in all of heaven. And really, if we could see it clearly as God sees it in all of earth as well. Because what we are is we are sinners. And if there's anything good about us at all, it comes from God and God only. And so we must know in our heart that we are not better or greater than anyone, anywhere, period. The second reason why it's it's important or necessary for us to be humbled is that if we draw attention to ourselves, then we're distracting others from God. Again, in our text in Isaiah, Isaiah records something that he saw while he was caught up into that scene where he was in the throne room of God. 
He describes the seraphim that were there, these angelic beings that surrounded the throne, that shouted, holy, 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 and that their words were so powerful that it shook the pillars of the house, filled with smoke. I mean, glorious scene. But he tells us that these seraphim had six wings, and that with two of them, they covered their bodies, with two of them, they covered their faces, and with only two of them, did they fly. Now, let me ask you a question. What purpose does a wing serve? To fly, right? But these angels used twice as much of what God had given them to hide themselves than they did to do the thing that the thing was made for, which was to fly. Now, why is that? Because they recognized how out of harmony it would be with the whole scene for them to at all attract any attention to their glory or their beauty. Now, if we saw those angels, I think our minds would be blown. We would say, oh, I've never seen anything so wonderful, so majestic, so inspiring as those angels. But their glory didn't hold a candle to the true glory of what was on the throne, and they wouldn't dare for one minute detract or distract from that true beauty in order to draw attention to themselves. And any time a human being takes what God gives, the honor that God gives, and uses it to flaunt or to glorify or beautify themselves or draw people's attention to themselves, they are bringing themselves and others out of harmony with heaven. That would be the equivalent as if one of those angels, right? Picture the scene. You're there and the angels, they're shouting, holy, holy, holy. And then all of a sudden, just one of those angels just kind of unmasks And then just start singing a totally different song. I'm walking on sunshine. Oh. Um, And and all of a sudden, it'd be like the record scratched. You know, and every, wait, what just happened? Something that God created, something that gets its glory and its honor from God has just upstaged God. And it's the most ridiculous thing that could ever happen. And so humility is absolutely necessary because when we draw attention to ourselves, even the good things, the honor that God gives to us, we sin against the glory of the one who sits upon uh, the throne. Samuel Morse said this. He's, he was the great inventor, invented the, the telegraph, but he said this uh, about that uh, after being praised for his invention. He said, I have made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because God who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone, and he was pleased to reveal it to me. And that's that's exactly how we should deal with anything that we have from God, is that if, 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 if I've done it for his name, then let it be for his glory as well. I read a quote, and it's that if you ever see a turtle on top of a fence post, you know it had help. And that's all any of us ever are on our best day, is we're a turtle on a fence post. God puts us in places where we can make a difference for him, but it's for his glory. And then number three, finally, is that without humility, you cannot know his love, which is the source of the honor that he gives. Now, we know, if we've been around the Bible at all, about the love of God. 1 John 4, 8, God is love, the Bible says. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, but God commends or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And, and if we were to describe God, and I said describe God in three words, every one of us, one of those three words would be that God is love. But so often, our knowledge of God's love is a head knowledge. It's something that we've learned on the pages of Scripture. We can quote it in concept. But truthfully, for many of us, it's kind of a foreign experience. We know it. We're well-versed in it. But do we walk in it and do we experience it? Do we know what it feels like to bask and bathe in the love of God in our lives personally? So how does God's love translate from something that we simply just know about to something that we experience and we can say with authority that I know the love of God because I've experienced the love of God and there's nothing like the love of God that he gives within my life. How does that happen? There is no worse moment, I believe, in a human life than the moment that we are exposed to what we truly are within our heart. Where God takes our knowledge of ourselves from the head to the heart, like I showed you before with the box and the waist. You know, that moment of realizing what you are. That's a painful moment to have to live through. I think of what it was like for Isaiah at that moment that he said, woe is me, that for the first time he saw himself in the light of God's goodness. I think of Daniel, the prophet, who there's no recorded sin attached to Daniel's reputation at all. But in chapter 10 of Daniel, he has a similar experience where he sees the Lord and his testimony is this. He says, my beauty was turned in me into corruption. That the things that I thought about myself that were so good, when I saw them in the light of who he was, they were just turned into the the, the deepest darkness that I could ever even experience what's inside of me. And and he was broken by that. I think of uh, Peter, who at that moment when he denied Christ, not knowing that it was in his heart that he could deny Christ, but denying Christ. And it says that he went out and he wept bitterly because he realized what he was that was inside. And that moment hurts when God lifts back the veil and he allows us to see what's going on inside of us. And some people, even at that moment, they refuse to see it. God shows them. They do the most wicked and awful thing, something that they didn't know they were even capable of. And then they turn around from that experience and they refuse to think about it, refuse to recognize it and say, no, 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 that wasn't me. I I didn't do that. That was something else or I did it because, but that, that wasn't really me and they just won't look at it. Other people, they respond like Judas after he had sold the Lord. They're, they're so confused by the whole thing that they just have to die. They can't even go on living after that moment, realizing what they did. But then there's some, like Peter or like Daniel or like Isaiah, that when they see what's truly in themselves, they see through that, and on the other side of it, they see a Savior that's hanging upon a cross who says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And my love towards them is so great that I'm willing not just to put their waste in the garbage can, but I'm willing to remove it from them and place it upon myself. And then myself absorb the punishment, the justice, and the wrath that that filth deserved as a demonstration of my love and my desire to have fellowship and relationship with them. And when you, through the wickedness of your own heart, can see Christ who loves you in spite of you and who took it and takes it upon himself so that it can be put away and washed away forever in the sea of God's forgetfulness, 
then you experience the love of God in a way that the knowledge of scripture can never do in your head. Because his love becomes real in my heart. God, why would you love me? You see what's in me. I couldn't see it. Now I see it. And all I want to do is hide. I don't want to be in your presence. I don't want to be. God, hide me, we say, when we see it. But he comes to us and he says, no, I'm going to do even better. I'm going to remove that from you. And I'm going to place it upon myself. That your sinfulness might become my righteousness. God, not imputing his, our trespasses unto us, but placing them upon Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's the love of God. And when we realize that his love is greater than our sin, we are glad to be hidden in Christ Jesus. We live, sadly, in a society where the language of humility is almost gone. No one wants to embrace the truth about the human condition or even about themselves, what's going on in our own hearts. And even in churches, Christians are so blinded to the true condition of man And they won't acknowledge the fact that we are fallen, that we are nothing. And the consequence of that is that God's beauty goes unseen because we're so distracted with ourselves. And second of all, God's love is never truly known. It's known in concept, but it's not known in reality. So what do we do with this? I mean, we talk about humility, we study it, we think about it, we try to see ourselves in light of it. What do we take away from this? What's the application? Two things. Number one. Embrace the humbling circumstance that comes into your life. There is a portion of our Christian experience, every one of us, that can be branded or titled humility or humbling. There's a season that God takes every one of us through if we want to follow him and walk with him where we have to see what we are. And he does it through failure. He does it through our weaknesses, exposing them. He does it through the suffering that we endure. He does it through various circumstances. He has a lot of ways to bring us into that light and realization. But part of what God is doing through all of those circumstances is that he's seeking to humble us. And that is just simply to align our own view of ourselves with what he sees is truly going on within our heart. It's what God was doing with the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. He says, I did this to humble you that you would know what's truly in your heart. The purpose of God doing that is not that we would feel pain. Not that we would just suffer and say, okay, well, I paid my dues and now I can move on towards honor. But rather the reason why God brings us through that part of our life called humility is so that, and listen, catch this, so that he can set us on a downward trajectory for our future. You say, what do you mean by a downward trajectory? The Apostle Paul, after his, you know, 10 years on the sidelines as the water boy, you know, as he was being humbled. He made a statement after that 10-year period, early in his ministry. He called himself the least of the apostles. Now, that's pretty humble, wouldn't you say? I mean, he knew God had called him to be an apostle, and he was one of the greatest. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. He was an apostle, but he says, I'm the least of the apostles. That's a humble statement. But a little bit later on, in Paul's ministry, in Paul's life, he made a second statement. You know what he said? He said, I'm less than the least of all saints. Wait, Paul, wait. You used to be the least of the apostles, and what you're saying is now you're even worse? You went from the lowest of these to the lowest of all the saints? I mean, 
that's kind of, I mean, that's a big statement, Paul. That's huge. He didn't stop there. At the end of his life, just prior to going to be with Jesus, you know what he said about himself? He said, I am the chief of sinners. See, over the span of his life, he didn't grow greater and greater. He grew less and less. He realized that he was less, lower. And the more he saw of himself and the more he saw Jesus, the less he realized that he was. And he said, I am the chief of all sinners. There is no one worse than me. And it is simply a testament to God's grace and goodness that he would show his love towards me at all or that he would pay the price for my sins. So embrace the humbling circumstances that God brings into your life because he's seeking to bring you downward so that he can bring you upward. Look at the impact that Paul had upon the world. And then number two, and finally, what do we do with this message? Humble yourself. Embrace the truth about yourself. Or even better, think of yourself as even worse than you already think that you are. Paul said it this way to the Philippians. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, meaning that that's who he was, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He didn't feel as though he was stealing anything by being called equivalent to God, because he was God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Jesus did? He was God, but he stepped down and God became a man. And from man, he stepped down and the man became a servant. And from a servant, he stepped down and he took on the form of a sinner. He went from God to man to servant to sinner for the sake of saving. And the result of that was exaltation high above the heavens. What's the point? That in the Christian world, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And the language of humility speaks volumes with God every time. There's a test that you can take to see how you're doing in this quest of yours and this quest of mine to see, God, how humble am I actually? Let me ask you just a few questions and then we close. How do you react when you're put down? How do you feel when you're upstaged by someone else? co-worker, family member, partner, or friend? How do you feel when you're subtly insulted? How do you respond when you're overlooked and someone else takes the place that you believe belongs to you? What happens in your heart when you're mistreated and feel you're violated? What do you do when you're taken for granted and people don't appreciate what you bring or who you are? Do you have unforgiveness in your heart towards anyone? See, our answer to those questions and many others like it can reveal to us in an instant just exactly how far along we are in this lifelong trajectory of downwardness. To be truly humble and to take on, like Christ, the form of a servant. 
I realize I have no rights. I realize who am I in the sight of God that I should think that I should get any honor at all? And who am I that I should look to man for honor that only comes from God? My prayer for us, for every one of us, is that every one of us would experience the honor that God seeks to bestow upon our lives. But understand this, that before honor is humility. And without humility, there can be no honor. I believe a good New Year's resolution this year for every one of us as we approach that time of assessment and looking forward is that we might say, I, God, want to become less this year. And may I become fluent in the language of humility. Father, we thank you this morning for the word that you give, the truth of the scripture. May it make an impression upon our hearts that lasts, Lord, not just for a day or for a moment, but may, Lord, by your grace, you reveal to us what we truly are, that we might know you and that we might walk in the light of your glory with great, sincere humility. Thank you for your love, Lord, towards us. May we experience the fellowship of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.